Welcome to Life Point Plus, a program dealing with marriages and family. We are so glad you're listening. Here's your host, pastor and teacher, Gary Moore. Welcome to Life Point Plus. I'm your host, Gary Moore. We're continuing our deep dive into 1 Corinthians 13. When we closed last week's broadcast, we were looking at the first part of the sixth verse. It reads, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. We ended with Bob Lapine's quote, A failure to speak the truth in love isn't loving or truthful. It's usually cowardice. At the same time, we have to be careful we don't drift into the sin of self-righteousness. You know, we are hardwired to become Pharisees, adding our own rules to what God requires and thinking ourselves to be extra-spiritual or super-Christians. We easily see the specks in our spouse's eyes while we miss the logs in our own. Just what constitutes the wrongdoing that the Bible tells us not to support or rejoice in? A while back, the word righteousness found its way again into our cultural lexicon after a long season on the bench. Not long after a school secretary in the 1980s movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off reported that the title character was considered by his classmates as a righteous dude, the word was being employed more regularly. It was applied to everything from police arrests to certain strains of cannabis. All of a sudden, righteous was being applied to things with no inherent ethical capabilities instead of to human behavior. In the Bible, righteousness means living rightly, living in sync with the way we were designed and how we were created to live. God is the ultimate judge of what is righteous and what isn't. We are living righteous lives when our thoughts and words and actions are in alignment with how God really tells us we are to live. Bob says that we often fail to see the connection between righteousness and love, but it's clearly there. All of the commandments of God, Jesus says, can be summed up in two general categories, loving God and loving others. You can't love God and other people and at the same time rejoice in wrongdoing. It's impossible. That's why translators use words like evil and iniquity as synonyms for unrighteousness or wrongdoing. The first instance of wrongdoing in human history initiated the unraveling of the love between Adam and Eve, the two that God had made one. Their rebellion against God's command not to eat from the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was a rejection of God's plan for them. And it was a conscious choice to buy the lie that Satan was selling. Paraphrased, it was, You can be like God. You can decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. The act of wrongdoing on their part had an impact on their marriage. In Genesis 3, when God confronts Adam about their sin, his first response is to blame his wife. It's the woman's fault, he said. And then he blamed God, the woman you gave me. As soon as they rejected God's plan for them, Adam and Eve started their drift from oneness and love for each other to isolation and blame. Bob says that wrongdoing is the first fruit born in a self-centered, self-focused heart. The reason love cannot rejoice at wrongdoing 
is because our wrongdoing comes from our desire to follow our own path and do our own thing. He goes on to say that focusing on self is the opposite of love. The people to whom Paul wrote as he lay out his definition of love were notorious for being carnal and flesh-driven instead of being spiritual and spirit-driven. The church at Corinth was marked by division and disputing to the point that people were taking one another to civil court. Sexual immorality was rampant. Their practice of the Lord's Supper had become a mockery. And through it all, they were commending themselves for their spirituality. They were a mess, and they had no clue. Bob paraphrases verse 6 this way, Love does not rejoice or get excited when people are living out of sync with the plan of God for their lives. And to the extent that our lives, our marriages, or our family are not in sync with God's plan for us, our relationships will lack love. So if we are not to rejoice at unrighteousness, what should we be doing? Well, maybe the bigger question is this. How should we respond to our spouse when we believe he or she is out of sync with God's plan? What do we do when we see unrighteousness or wrongdoing in them? It's not loving to join in or to celebrate their unrighteousness, and it's not loving to ignore it either. So how should we respond? Bob encourages us to respond as Jesus responded. When I read through the Gospels, I am struck by how Jesus responded when he came face to face with people who were living sinful lives. You know, it was never a one-size-fits-all approach with Jesus. Think about it. When he encountered self-righteous people, he did not hesitate to speak directly with them about their pride and arrogance. He didn't pull any punches. In Matthew 23, for example, he called the scribes and Pharisees a brood of vipers, and whitewashed tombs, and hypocrites. And that was the religious leaders. But more often, when he encountered self-righteousness, Jesus' rebuke was measured as it was with the rich young ruler. Here was a man who thought he was righteous because of his own law-keeping. Jesus gently exposed the issues that were still present in that young man's life. Jesus was also gentle with the Pharisees in John 8, who brought to him the woman caught in adultery. He didn't blast them. Instead, he simply and calmly showed them their own sin. So with the self-righteous, Jesus was sometimes gentle and sometimes forceful as he exposed the reality of remaining sin that they either couldn't see or else minimized or dismissed altogether. But there was another group a group Bob calls the humble unrighteous. With these men and women, Jesus was always gentle. He always demonstrated an overpowering love. Let's look at some of these examples. The woman caught in adultery in John 8. Jesus loved her and told her to go and sin no more. The unrighteous woman in Luke 7, who is simply identified as a woman of the city. She was a sinner who interrupted a dinner party Jesus was attending and came and wept and kissed his feet and anointed them with perfume. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Matthew, the unrighteous, rich tax collector. Jesus called him to be a disciple and then went to a party at his house with all of his unrighteous friends. Zacchaeus, the unrighteous, rich tax collector who wanted to get a look at Jesus, but hid in a tree because he knew he wasn't worthy. Jesus called him down from the tree and said, I must stay at your house today. Bob says that what ought to catch our attention as we read these accounts from the life of Jesus is how gracious, how kind, how patient, and how gentle he was in the face of wrongdoing. Yes, he overturned the money changers' tables in the temple. Yes, he told the Pharisees that they were of their father, the devil. But more often in the face of ungodliness, Jesus was gentle. He confronted the sin he saw in the lives of the people around him with tender concern and kindness. When there are patterns of wrongdoing or unrighteousness that we can see in our spouse's life, our job is to be like Jesus, to follow his example and to humbly, kindly, and gently point out their sin and point them back to him. The Bible gives us a roadmap to follow when we see our spouse in an ongoing pattern of unrighteousness. Paul says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Notice he said, Bear one another's burdens, not solve each other's problems. Is your spouse caught in a pattern of ongoing wrongdoing in your marriage? Well, here's what you can do. 1. Do some self-examination first. When Paul says, you who are spiritual, he's not saying we need to be perfect before we can help someone else. He's saying we need to ask ourselves if there is any unrighteousness in our own life that needs to be addressed. Before you try to help your spouse with his or her sins, make sure you address your own sins. Pray the prayer found in Psalms 139, verses 23 and 24. Ask God to search you and reveal any wrongdoing in your heart. Deal with your own logs before you attempt to help your spouse with his or her speck. Number two, make restoration your goal. You who are spiritual, restore him. The reason for confronting wrongdoing in another person is to see that person restored to righteousness. It's not to shame your husband or your wife. It's not to vent your own anger about their actions or behavior. It's to see your spouse walking rightly with God. Number three, maintain the kind of gentle spirit Jesus modeled when he addressed sin in people's lives. A meek spirit is a spirit that keeps its power in check. There is self-control at work. Kindness toward the transgressor is paramount. Well, our time's gone for today. As we close, I invite you to join me Monday mornings at 10 a.m on my Mutual Understanding Method Facebook page for some live teaching about areas of your relationship where mutual understanding is critical. Also, pick up your free copy of Christian Living at one of the more than 600 locations throughout the Treasure Valley and Twin Falls. 
read my current Understanding Relationships column titled, Four Marriages Within a Marriage. Have a great and safe weekend. God bless. Thank you for listening today. This program is brought to you by Cloverdale Church of God. If you would like to reach Pastor Gary, please email him at pastorgary at cloverdalechurch.org. To know more about the church, go to our website at www.cloverdalechurch.org. Thanks for listening and be blessed.